0: Welcome to this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series Elevate. I'm your host Garth Sundin, communications director at MAPS, and today we're discussing industry-sponsored publications with Felix David, senior business development manager at Wiley and a former managing editor of the medical journal Trends in Urology and Men's Health, and Richard Donnelly, professor of medicine at the University of Nottingham and editor in chief of Diabetes Obesity. And metabolism. So welcome to you both. And uh, things in this field are changing. And I was hoping we could start out, Felix, maybe with an overview of the changing publications landscape for peer reviewed content.
1: Thank you very much, Garth. Yes, um, I could jump straight into that. So since the widespread use of the internet, the publishing landscape has really drastically altered to adapt to it as a medium, uh, with its numerous channels for the instant dissemination of a vast and, of course, very rapidly increasing amount of research. When thinking what this will mean for peer-reviewed content, it is important to flag that this does change between regions and disciplines. However, within medical publishing in particular, peer-reviewed papers still have a tremendous value to the healthcare audience. So Wiley undertakes annual surveys of our healthcare professional audience every year to assess changing content preferences. And the recent results demonstrate that peer review articles are self-selected as the most valued resource in clinical (laughs) decision-making. However, the peer review publication is not without its challenges. So traditionally it remains as a PDF and it has an abstract methods, results and a conclusion, which is a structure which honestly hasn't really changed for decades, if not centuries. (laughs) The internet has, of course, increased the ways we can publish content, and it really does beg the question about if peer review articles do remain the best way to disseminate information, as there are a variety of other format types, for example, graphical abstracts, video and infographic summaries and plain language summaries that can also support the data publication process. In regards to the challenges of peer review publications, our authors often flag that their main pain points are around faster publication, better data, and innovative ways to publish and collaborate on key research. In this regard, I have to say that open access has of course been one of the largest changes to peer review publishing. It's made research much more accessible than ever before, while new systems such as REX, which is the Wiley Research Exchange, has made excellent strides in improving the article submission workflow for authors. One other big factor is that the cooperative coexistence between preprints and peer review articles has also represented a huge recent shift in the landscape, accelerating dramatically in 2020 and 2021 in demonstration of the importance of the rapid publication to our authors. By way of example, in 2020, more than 200,000 peer review articles were published on COVID and around 40,000 preprints on COVID, so it already represents a fifth of output. In summary, of all of that, the changing landscape for peer review publications, the medical sciences in particular, is revolving around open access, open data, and better ways of supporting collaboration. Okay. Richard, would you say that that also syncs in with what you're seeing?
2: Yes, it is. Um, my interest is is around content and particularly industry-related content that gets submitted to peer review journals. And what we're seeing is a greater variety of data sources that can be used by industry to perform various types of analyses to provide new information either about disease states or about therapy areas or indeed about what's happening in real world clinical practice.
0: Okay, so we have this changing landscape in in which we've had this very static format for a peer-reviewed study that, that has been around for decades or perhaps even centuries, but now we have disruption in terms of, you know, the, the internet and, and uh, potentially new opportunities that come along with that. So Felix, what new opportunities are you seeing for publications groups, may, maybe specifically in medical affairs? that are seeking to place their sponsored content?
1: That's a really good question. So I think that when considering publication, I would say the key struggle for medical affairs teams and authors alike is how to ensure that their research does actually make impact. Mm -hmm. For context, I think I've already mentioned that research is rapidly increasing and more than 6 million postdocs and researchers publish more than 2.5 million articles in peer-reviewed journals each year. And this adds to the more than 50 million articles that have already been published. And this rate is actually increasing by about 5% every single year. Impact is therefore a very valid concern as it is very clearly impossible for a researcher to view all the related content in their field. Um, as we've actually mentioned, healthcare professionals still self-select that peer-reviewed articles are their most important tool for clinical decision-making. Mm-hmm. However, in those similar surveys, the responses we're seeing also demonstrate an increasing trend to highly rate the importance of supplementary materials, such as infographics and videos in clinical decision-making. Okay. Yeah, this trend does make sense, of course, because healthcare professionals are notoriously time poor due to their clinical and professional work. And so interactive assets that can quickly summarize data into these relevant summaries be it via perhaps a graphical abstract, a video or infographic, or even an audio version of an article are very useful as a time saving tool. Um, We at Wiley work with our Wiley Editing Services team, for example, to produce a range of digital assets that have demonstrated use by healthcare professionals alongside a comprehensive marketing strategy to ensure the impact of published research. These assets themselves are often embedded within the article, and they would be a key opportunity. I would recommend for medical affairs on their published data and what we usually term as article discovery packages. So you can you can see where the name comes from. Yep,
0: for yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, interesting In- so, impact. Yeah,
0: oh, sorry, go on. Oh no, no, no. I was just going to say impact would be the goal, and the opportunities are taking advantage of all these new formats. I, I'm I'm sorry. Keep going. <laughs>
1: No, so that actually leads on because I was I was going to flag that in future, I wouldn't actually be surprised if the supplementary materials that we're discussing now uh, mm. will actually start to supplant the article itself as the most accessed resource for education. So where actually the graphical abstracts, infographics and videos are really a uh, necessary tool within an article to actually ensure that the data makes impact within the relevant audience.
0: Okay, interesting. So, uh, Professor Donnelly, what, what opportunities are, are you seeing in this changing publications landscape? So, I
2: think the interesting thing, there are two areas I would highlight. Firstly, I think the audiences which access clinical academic journals in medicine are changing. It okay. used to be that the audience was primarily healthcare professionals, But in fact, now the audience for our publications includes regulators, it includes payers, it includes groups which are responsible for national and international guidelines, and it includes patients themselves Mm -hmm. who are becoming much more armed and curious about good sources of information. So there is much greater variety of audiences who are looking for certain pieces of information that are relevant to them. The area, the second area that I see in development is the, the move away from traditional randomized control trials as being the sole source of evidence about whether treatments work and if they're safe and moving much more towards the analyses made possible around real-world evidence. Mm -hmm. So healthcare systems around the world are becoming much more electronic. It becomes much more feasible to ask an intelligent question about what's happening in real-world everyday clinical practice and to interrogate these databases in a way that provides very powerful information because you can access information relating to large numbers of patients over long periods of time. And you can show quite interesting disparities between the magnitude of what's perceived as a drug effect in a a highly selected subgroup in a randomized trial compared with a real world population. So we're seeing much more in the way of submission and publication of real world evidence studies, which are very influential and very appealing to a number of important stakeholders uh, and the audiences that I referred to. So I think one of the big opportunities is to make use of real world evidence in order to engineer analyses that are relevant, not just to healthcare professionals, but to those other stakeholders
0: okay so we have new kinds of studies being communicated through new formats to new audiences so when let's switch over to the editorial side um professor donnelly what are you looking for and what are editors looking for in an industry submission to wiley journals now or 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 elsewhere is it and is it the same is it changing what are you looking for
2: it is changing and let's start first of all with manuscript types okay and, and of course traditionally those manuscripts that have related to industry were the results of randomized controlled trials or possibly secondary or subgroup analyses of those trials yeah we're now seeing an increasing trend towards publishing protocols which is an important Uh, which is an important element of big RCTs. So publication of the protocol, or at least a manuscript, which essentially is focused solely on the statistical hierarchical analysis that will be used Mm -hmm. when the trial is unblinded. So publication of the protocol is a very useful way of sort of declaring how the data will be analyzed before the results are then later available.
0: Can I just and- follow up on that really quick? Is it, is it important to publish protocols, especially because there are new types of studies being done like real world evidence, and now, you know, in order to interpret the, I don't wanna say validity, but the validity of the data, we have to know how it's being analyzed?
2: Yes. And, and of course, let me give you an example from my own journal in diabetes. Mm-hmm. There was a, a very large cardiovascular outcome trial performed with an SGLT2 inhibitor known as the CANVAS trial, okay. published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm-hmm. My own journal published the protocol and the statistical analysis of that trial, okay. six months before the New England Journal paper. And when the New England Journal paper was published and presented at the American Diabetes Congress, of course, the discussion honed in very quickly on the mode of statistical analysis of some of the endpoints. And therefore, actually, it was very good for the authors to have devoted an entire manuscript solely to their intentions around statistical analysis. And to publish that ahead of the unblinding, which led to the New England paper, so that created greater transparency. Mm-hmm. It, it dealt with any suspicions that the statistical analysis had been adapted according to the results, um, and it was a very healthy way of, of declaring uh, intentions before results. Okay. So. Back to my original point that there are a variety of manuscript types that are now emerging. I've mentioned real-world evidence studies, which I think will increasingly replace some randomized control trials, at least for regulatory purposes in the future. Um, And those real-world evidence studies are far more influential when it comes to guideline groups and others who are interested in compliance, tolerability, effectiveness in the real world. And they're mindful that the, the inclusion exclusion criteria for randomised trials are getting ever more restrictive and selective yeah. such that those populations are no longer representative of the patients who receive a treatment. So, So editors are looking for a variety of content that provides important, relevant new information. Okay, That that content has to begin with a clinically relevant question in the context of what's not yet known in the literature Mm -hmm. uh, and importantly introduced alongside what is known. That, That content usually, for example structured with methods and results and discussion Mm -hmm. has to provide some new analysis, some new results, and it has to be put together with a balanced discussion, which highlights the limitations and the strengths and the clinical relevance of the analysis that's been, been performed. What I'd also say sometimes is that peer-reviewed journals are looking for the discussion of those analyses to be critical, and yeah. that means an honest acknowledgement of what the limitations and weaknesses are, as well as what the novelty and the clinical importance might be. And sometimes I'd say that, you know, industry often makes use of medical communications agencies in, in creating manuscripts and interfacing with editors like myself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those med agencies feel that they really have to please their employer by conjuring up a lot of marketing messages which they feel they have to sort of embed in the manuscript at least eight times in case anybody missed them.
0: Interesting. And so I
2: would say to medical affairs professionals to really keep a close handle on your medical comms agencies that they don't feel somehow obliged to drift into the sort of marketing realms of imagination and get back to what can you honestly and robustly say about this data set and let's acknowledge up front what the true limitations are so the manuscript is constructed and presented in what seems to be a plausible balanced and critical way and those med agencies also sometimes feel that they're unable to cite relevant literature that might have been sponsored by one of their competitor companies so they might be presenting and communicating a study on a particular drug, and they have a competitor product uh, from a competitor company, which has actually performed similar analyses in the literature. But, but they try and pretend that they can't really even mention that literature or, or reference it. And that, I have to say, causes a good deal of irritation to peer reviewers when when the sponsor and the medical agency appear to sort of completely ignore an element of the literature, which is highly relevant um, to what they're now presenting.
1: I think that's actually an important part to flag also for the supplementary materials. That I also mentioned is that when we talk about sponsor content, we really refer to content that though it is funded by the pharmaceutical industry, it remains editorially imp- independent. So without any influence on the selection and creation of the material. Um, So all supplementary materials, for example, do need to meet the same publication standards as the peer review article. And this uh, credibility is really vital to still achieve impact with healthcare professionals. So Rich and I have actually worked on this as well around um, bits in DOM around the sorts of um, infographics and the videos that can be embedded to ensure that they maintain that level of editorial review and independence so they are correct assessment of the article messages.
0: Well there's about 15 things there that I'd like to follow up on but I wonder if they I wonder if many of these things that you're looking for in a submission to a Wiley journal could could be could go under the umbrella of it used to be that a study would argue for its own validity that that it would say this is why what we did you know, ha- has importance and here's why you should believe it. And it seems like you're saying now that articles are increasingly looking at their own, not their own faults, but you're encouraging authors to not put forward the the narrative of, of why it's such a big deal, but, but to take a real look at their study and, and their limitations. Is that true? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think all pieces of research can be interpreted up to a point, point. and it, it, with any uh, with any balanced scientific communication, there needs to be a summary of what's original, what's new,
1: okay.
2: uh, what the strengths of the analysis were, what the limitations of the analysis were, and how this how this research sits alongside other recent relevant literature in terms of whether it's consistent with or whether, in fact, it's different from. And and as long as that's discussed in a balanced, uh, comprehensive way that acknowledges the literature out there, including bits of the literature that might be uncomfortable to the sponsor, then, then editors and peer reviewers will like it because it begins with a clinically relevant question.
0: Um,
2: So I I think there is something about how these these manuscripts are are put together. And increasingly, certainly numerically, there are way more sort of real-world evidence-type observational studies being produced and published these days than randomised controlled trials. Um, So I think the the days of the randomized controlled trial are limited in many respects because they're they're becoming so expensive, they're becoming so highly selective in their recruitment criteria um, that they are of limited value solely for the regulatory audience to to demonstrate often in a placebo-controlled fashion that a drug is safe and it works. But what the payers want to know, which is really the next big issue, because for industry, as soon as you got your FDA approval, hey, presto, you just handed it over to the marketeers to say whatever they liked. But nowadays, the payers are asking a separate set of questions Mm -hmm. to the regulators, and they're trawling the literature and looking at journals like mine to understand what is there out there to show me that this drug is actually effective in the sort of patients that we want to purchase the drug for, which includes all those groups, the majority who were excluded from the randomized controlled trial that went to the regulators. So I think there's great opportunity around real world evidence studies um, and industry is clearly spending huge amounts more in funding to facilitate real world evidence studies around the world as more and more electronic healthcare records become more accessible and more joined up in order to ask some very powerful questions about the utilization of these therapies or indeed to just get more information about a disease topic you know um and and true
0: outcomes from a particular
2: diagnosis.
0: All right, well, let's leave it at that for today. And I would appreciate the opportunity to continue this discussion uh, at some point. Uh, Authors, expand your imaginations and look at uh, what you can do, not just with RCTs uh, and a PDF with your abstract methods, results, and discussion, but all of these other features that go beyond in format and beyond in audience with a clear-eyed look at the clinical relevance of your work and its limitations. So MAPS members, don't forget to subscribe, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate.